Good morning. Okay, it is a honor and privilege to be able to preach God's word and also to preach on the topic of what is a Christian. I mean, that's kind of a daunting task when you think about um, all the books, probably the libraries that are devoted to what is a Christian and, and books about Christians. Um, so I'm going to try to keep it simple. I'm going to try to definitely keep it biblical and also try to keep it applicable. But the main theme of my message today, what is a Christian, from Luke 23, is a Christian is someone who has received the gracious salvation of God by placing their trusting faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Now, despite the simplicity of this simple concept of what is a Christian, someone who believes in Jesus, there's a lot of controversy and also confusion. And I hope that God's word and the spirit of God would give a lot of clarity to this today. I think one thing that people don't understand about this trusting faith is that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. The two go hand in hand. Um, It's not that repentance um, earns our salvation, but repentance is, is is an acknowledgement that one is in a sinful, helpless state, um, that we are rebels by nature. There's something deeply wrong with us that we would doubt the goodness of our beloved God who created all things and gave all things to us. Why would we doubt such goodness? And on top of that, from our Christian lenses and the perspective we have today, God did not just stop by giving us his creation, but He gave us his son, the creator, to make a way for us back to the father. So repentance looks like an acknowledgement of our needy state, of our sinful state. And then we respond to the good news through faith that God has given us Christ. He is our salvation. Also, to kind of help us understand, too, what what this faith is, is um, there's three points that I'm going to be going over today. Um, First of all, first point is that a Christian is justified. Okay, a Christian is justified. That is our convictions. What what does our faith believe in? What does our faith trust in? Second, a Christian is being sanctified. Okay, justification is a done deal, but sanctification is an ongoing process that every single Christian in the world today will continue to go through and process through until they're called home to be with the Lord. Sanctification. And, and that's what really what our faith sounds and looks like. And our, my last point is Christians will be glorified. Okay? What does that mean? See, our glorification is this is not the best by any means. What we are living in and experiencing is not the best. Not only that, this world will never have the best until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. There will be a day of glorification for every believer when our faith will become sight, when the imperishable will become imperishable, where the mortal will become mortal. For all those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, we're going to get a huge upgrade. And the greatest thing about our upgrade will be we won't be sinners anymore. Sin will be eradicated. And the most beautiful thing about our glorification is we will see the face of our Savior in heaven. 
What do people say about Christians? I know there's a lot of talk, and often talk goes to things that people do, um, things that we do. And I think there's, that's definitely valid and, and has some weight to it. I often hear, too, in conversations about um, what is a Christian and, and going to heaven. I often hear things like, well, will Gandhi go to heaven? Will Mother Teresa? Will great leaders like Abraham Lincoln and, and um, many others that have done great things? And I think the, the problem with that line of thinking and discussion, although it has some points to it, is that it's focusing on the works of man and not the works of Christ. The works of man will never, ever earn the merit that we need to be justified, to be made right with God, to get into heaven. Only Jesus Christ can do that for us. Um, what makes me um, think about this in, in particular was recently I had a conversation with a person who called himself a Christian, very sincere, very dear individual, and was talking about church membership. Um, also shared that had some concerns about not being able to share the gospel, really not understanding it. So we opened up the scriptures, and I, I turned to Romans 3.23, and I read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation, a means of making us right with God again. And we, we talked about that and discussed that. And I said, so in other words, can we ever earn our salvation? And the individual said, yes. And I, was, I was taken back. So we, we, we walked and talked through that passage again. And we talked about the grace of God, how it's undeserved favor. It's a, it's a gift, not something that you can earn. And he shook his head, looked a little confused, and I said, so in other words, is it ever something that we deserve or are worthy of? And again, he responded, yes. I will have follow-up conversations um, with, with this dear, dear person, but to me, what that displays is that there's not a proper understanding of what a Christian is. And also, more importantly, who Christ is and what he's done for us. There's not an understanding of our justification in Christ Jesus, as well as our sanctification process and our glorification, the hope that we look forward to. So I ask myself, if I'm going to preach on what is a Christian, what are some good Christian examples from the Bible? And the first came to mind was the Apostle Paul. Um, I mean, there you have a man who was a religious leader who knew God's word in and out. And despite all of that, he did everything he could to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, even to the point of taking Christians and having them thrown in jail. And he even witnessed and gave his consent to the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He approved of it. But God took that man and turned his heart around. He gave him life. He opened his eyes. And he became one of the greatest gospel preachers and apostles that the world has ever encountered. And when, today when we, we read the Bible, the New Testament, so many of the letters were penned by Paul. See, he was a poster child of God's grace, what God could do. 
I also thought of Peter. Peter is a man's man. He's a leader. He's a guy that speaks first and thinks second, you know. Um, But we love him. We love him. He's so real. He was so passionate and he loved Jesus. But yet, when Jesus was going to the cross, he denied him three times. He lost heart. I think of his conversation in the garden with Jesus where he was, I'll I'll fight. I'll, I'll, I'll fight to the end for you. But when Jesus told him to put down his sword and the soldiers came to carry him away, he was dismayed. He didn't understand. He did not know what Jesus was really about. He knew that he was God's Messiah. He knew that he was the Son of God, but he was completely flabbergasted. And he didn't understand what was going on when Jesus went to the cross. But despite that, when the resurrected Christ came back, he spoke to Peter. And three times he reinstated him and said, feed my sheep. What a testimony. The list goes on. We have Stephen, the first martyr. We have Mary Magdalene, the prostitute, demon-possessed woman that was one of Jesus' closest disciples. We have the Samaritan woman at the well who Jesus went out of his way and across the tracks the wrong side of town to speak to a lady in the midday noon and tell her explicitly that he was the Messiah. The first person in the New Testament that Jesus actually said, I am the Messiah to. Despite all these wonderful models of Christians, I chose to go with the criminal on the cross. I think he is a beautiful, beautiful and simplistic model of what a Christian truly is. Let's turn to Luke 23, chapters, or verses 32 through 38. And before we uh, dive into God's word and let the Lord dive into our hearts, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today boldly, not because of any merit of our own, not because of any righteous works, not because of anything that we've done to earn your favor, pay back our sin debt. No, Lord, there's nothing we could do. In fact, everything we do do is is tainted by our sin, our corrupted nature. Lord, we only come to you by the perfect righteous life of your son, Jesus Christ, by his atoning death of dying in our place on the cross absorbing the full wrath of God that we deserve. He took our blame and his resurrection. It is because of Christ and Christ alone and his merit that he gave to us, his righteousness, something that we do not deserve and never will deserve, but we will throughout eternity give praise to you and glory for such a wonderful gift, for such a wonderful salvation, for such a wonderful Savior. Lord God, that's how we come to you today boldly and approach your throne of grace. And Lord, we ask for grace today that you would speak to our hearts through the reading of your word, that your spirit would do a work in our minds and in our hearts, that you would continue by the power of your spirit to transform our way of thinking to be more like Christ's, to understand who Christ is and what he has done for us and who we are in Christ. Lord God, I pray that your spirit would do an amazing work today through the preaching and teaching of your word. 
that we would have a new security in Christ, that we would have a new comfort in Christ, that we would have a new assurance in Christ that's deeper than it ever was before, so that we might live lives that are good and for your glory. Lord, that we might be the light that you called us to be, your people, your family, your precious bride, here on the hill, and that we would make your son known in this neighborhood, in town, in city, in the state of California, across our nation and abroad the world. Use us, Lord. Father, we have a, a list of characters that you have used throughout history in your word. So, Father, we know that you can use us, and you've called us. Father, I pray, too, for anyone who has walked through these doors today that does not know you as Lord and Savior, someone that may have confusion about what it is to be a Christian, that doesn't understand what, what faith truly is, Lord. Father, I'm just a humble preacher, school teacher. Lord, use the words that I speak today. May they be your words from the Bible. May you penetrate their heart. May you make them aware of their helpless condition and how needy they are and realize how beautiful a Savior they have in Jesus Christ and that he alone can meet their greatest need, a need that goes beyond financial security, a need that goes beyond good health, a need that goes beyond restored relationships, a need to be saved from themselves, their own sinful nature. And may they see as they look to you, beautiful, loving eyes of compassion that say, you will one day be with me in paradise. Lord, do a work in and amongst your people today for our good and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What I would like for us first to do is we're going to read through Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 38. This gives us kind of a, a good background, um, backdrop to what's going on at the crucifixion. As I stated earlier, the, the main theme of this is what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has received the gracious salvation of God by placing their trusting faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone. Therefore, it's very important that we understand who Christ is and what he's doing on the cross. See, Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Um, both Mary and Joseph were the line of, were from the tribe of Judah. They were from the line of David. And as scriptures said, and if we go way back, there was a promise that from the line of David, there would be a king that would rise, and he would save their people. He would be a mighty king, a glorious warrior, a righteous one. But also, Scripture spoke, and the prophets spoke too, of this Messiah being a suffering servant. And that can created some confusion, especially with the Jewish people at the time of Christ. Um, they loved the victorious king riding in on a war horse to um, destroy the Roman Empire and set them up. Um, but a suffering servant 
That was kind of obscure and and a, a stumbling block, as Scripture says. We know that Jesus preached repentance and faith. He preached the forgiveness of sins. He preached to love your neighbor and even love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. We know that Jesus healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He even raised the dead. He did all of these wonderful things. And yet he was rejected by the religious leaders. And we see him being turned over to the authorities. Both Herod, the Jewish puppet king at this time, could find no fault with him. So he turns him over to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And the Roman official, he himself, who was acting as judge, he could find no fault in him either. We see in the previous chapter, in chapter 22, that um, Pilate takes him before the crowds. And even the crowds, they reject him and say, crucify, crucify. Although they were riled up by the religious leaders. But now we see him on his way to the cross, being rejected by his creation, his own people. He was rejected both by Jew and Gentile. As scriptures say, a crucified Christ was a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Gentiles. Let's read Luke chapter 23, verse 32. It says that two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Verse 36, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Luke here wants to make it very clear that Jesus was innocent, that he was righteous. Luke also wants to make it very clear that this wasn't a mistake. And I think as we heard earlier today from Isaiah 53, that this was all part of God's plan. See, Jesus going to the cross was not some kind of, uh uh-oh, plan A failed. What are you going to do now, Jesus? This was the plan that God had. This was the Father's will that goes back to the Garden of Eden when he promised Eve after Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled and said, doubted the goodness of God, said we can do life on our own, ate from the forbidden tree of the truth, knowledge of truth and of good and evil. It was at that time that God made the first sacrifice. They were ashamed of their sin and their nakedness, and he gave them coverings, skin coverings, which came from a living animal at one time. He also made a promise to Eve that one of your offspring will rise up and crush the enemy. 
In the process of crushing the enemy, his, his heel will be bruised. He'll suffer. And here we see the fulfillment of that. I hope, too, that we, it's, it's, you can't neglect, too, the words of Christ in verse 34. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want to make it very clear that Jesus is not saying that they're innocent. These people are innocent by no means. But what he's doing is he is asking for forgiveness of the sins of the world for all those that would put their trust in him. See, and his prayer is being answered by his death. See, it's only Christ's substitutionary death that there can be forgiveness of any sin. So Jesus is praying for their forgiveness. And at the same time, he's saying, Father, I'm ready. See, this death on the cross is the means of our justification. Jesus did what we could not do. And he absorbed the full wrath of God, which we deserve. I've heard a dear brother refer to this as a spiritual transfusion. See, a transfusion takes place when a person is low in blood and is about to die. And they take a, a tube and hook blood from a more healthy, vibrant person. And they transfer life-giving blood to the person that needs it. See, the, the difference with this spiritual transfusion, though, is, is, is much more significant in that we as sinners are spiritually dead. We have no life in us. And the transfusion that's taking place is a two-way transfusion. Our sin is being transferred and pumped into Jesus, where Jesus absorbs the full wrath, the penalty due our sin, and what he pumps into us is life-giving pure blood, righteousness. See, Jesus takes all the sin and he gives us all his righteousness. This is the most powerful transaction that has ever taken place in all of time. Jesus is absorbing the wrath of God for the sins of the world. He's saying, Father, I'm ready for the transfusion. Save your people. So Luke wants to make it clear that Jesus is the Christ, God's Messiah, that came to the world to die for his people. That's how he saved his kingdom. So that those who believe in him could enter his kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. My first point now is, is justification. As we read through verses 39 and 42, I want to us to understand justification and also too how the criminal on the cross is a model Christian for us. See, justification, it's a legal declaration of being made righteous. It's the gavel of God, the judge of the universe, slamming down his hammer in his courtroom and saying, you are righteous. Now, now, let me make this clear. I've, at one point in my early um, Christianhood, I was told that justification means just as if you never sinned. That's, that's half of it. Okay? See, we are not just a clean slate before God where all of our sins are wiped away. That's true, but we're more. We also are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
We're not an empty slate. We've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when God looks upon us and he sees that we place our saving faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, he sees the precious blood of his son and he says, you are mine, you are priceless, you belong to me. You are the apple of my eye. See, justification is what we believe, okay? It's what we know about Christ. It's our convictions, I also love First or Second Corinthians 5.21. It's probably my favorite verse in the Bible. It says, For our sake, he who made for our sake he made him who knew no sin become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is what Jesus did on the cross. As we read in Isaiah 53, it was the will of God to crush him. This was God's plan. And we might ask for what end? It is for our good, Christians, and his glory. What are the outcomes of this justification? Okay? It's important for you and I, every Christian here, my brothers and sisters, for us to know that we are justified. Because if we're justified, we are forgiven. All sin has been forgiven. All of our debts are paid in full. We don't have to try to earn God's favor to work off our sins. In fact, even if we were to try, we can't do it. We're, we're forgiven. Again, as I said earlier, the scriptures say we have been made righteousness. The righteousness of Christ, which we do not deserve, has been given to us. Despite our spiritual poverty, he took our spiritual poverty and gave us all of his riches and wealth. We are also made sons of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ has is ours. We've also been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 says in verse 13, in him you were also in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it, which is glorification, to the praise of his glory. See, God also gives us his spirit. It's a witness inside us that we belong to him. Our our soul and our spirit cries out, Abba, Father, but so does the Spirit of God. It testifies that we belong to him, that we are his family, and that he is our Father. You see, in Christ, we have everything. All we need, we have in Christ. We have been justified. Although we are needy creatures, the Creator has met all of our needs. In Christ Jesus. But yet we we have hearts that are prone to wander. And there's also people that are still blinded to the gospel, still blinded to Christ, and they have not put their trust in him. And see, when when people aren't justified, see, when, when we are justified, we're rich, we're full, we have Christ, we belong, we are loved, we are seen, we are heard. We have a future. We have a hope. We have a purpose here and now in life. 
But if we're not justified, what do we try to do? Justify ourselves. It's called self-righteousness. See, we're, we're either justified by Christ or we live a life of trying to justify ourselves. And self-righteousness is ugly. It's not very becoming. Have you ever known someone who only kind of talks to you or bothers you at all when they need something, when they want something from you? Okay. Maybe a family member, maybe someone at work, maybe it's an employee, maybe it's your employer, maybe it's that friend that only shows up when they want something from you. It could be someone popular at school that could really care less about you, but all of a sudden notice that you have a very attractive brother or sister and wants to get to know you. See, that's what self-righteousness is. It's, it's us trying to earn favor with God, kind of pay off our debt, somehow please God. Let me just say this. First of all, God's not stupid. Okay? And, and, and second of all, what do you have to offer that compares to the work of Jesus Christ? See, when, when we Christians rest in our justification in Christ, number one, that sets our relationship with God apart. But number two, that affects our relationships with everyone else, especially those that we love. See, when, when we rest in our justification and our friends, family, maybe our spouses, disappoint us when they hurt us. Yeah, it hurts. But we can look at them with compassion and love and say, Jesus, what's, what's going on with them? What's, what are they struggling with? Jesus, please help them. I know that you have a better plan for them. See, when we rest in our justification, we're full. We're not needy. And even, even when people hurt us, we can still give them love back and pray for them. But when we forget about our justification, we become very critical. We become very self-serving. We become very judgmental of others. We become very ugly. See, Christian, resting in your justification is a powerful element to the Christian life. It also creates humility in us because, again, we remember that Our justification is nothing that we've done. It's only been a gracious gift from God. And if God can be so gracious to us, please, God, use me to be a dispenser of grace to others. Because Jesus loved us, we're able to love others. Let's see how the criminals, let's let's, let's look at the cross here and and, and turn to God's word. Verse 39 through 42, I'm going to read. How do we see that this criminal is is justified? One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, 
Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Okay, we've got two criminals here. One was justifying himself, and the other one was justified by Christ. What does the first criminal believe about Jesus? He doesn't believe that Jesus is any different than him. Just another man that got up on the wrong side of the bed, and here he is on the cross with me. He doesn't believe that he's the promised Messiah, the Savior. He doesn't believe that he's the sinless and righteous one. And it says that he rails against him. There's, there's an intensity of hatred. This man is about is to die. And the last thing he can do is spit out hate towards an innocent man. And what is this self-righteous person believe about himself, he believes he deserves salvation. Hey, if, if, if you are the Christ, save yourself and save me. Demanding. See, this is disbelief. This is blaspheme. But what about the second criminal? What does the second criminal's response say about his convictions? He first of all states that, stop it. This Jesus is innocent. This Jesus I've heard about. This Jesus preached love and peace. This Jesus knew the scriptures and devoted his life to sharing and teaching with common people. This Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. This Jesus I heard, could tell the storm to stop and calm the waves. This Jesus healed the sick, hung out with sinners, and told them that there was hope, that they could repent and be forgiven. This Jesus did nothing wrong. He's innocent. See, that's what he believed about Christ. And what did he believe about himself? I'm getting what I deserve. I'm I'm getting what I deserve. We deserve this. We've lived a life of rebellion. We've lived a life of being thankless to God. We, We lived a life of defining our own truth and our own righteousness and doing whatever we want to obtain security and comfort for ourselves. We've lived a life in total rebellion of God. We deserve this. See, that's, that's repentance. That's the heart of repentance. When a person understands their helpless state and their offense against a holy God. And what does he uh, believe about Jesus? As stated before, 
He's sinless. He, he recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's, let's take a look at that. He says, when he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, the, the Roman authorities didn't recognize his kingship. The religious leaders didn't recognize his kingship. Jesus' disciples were confused and saying, how could this be the Messiah, the great king that's going to save us? His life is dispersing right now. But the criminal, he recognized that this was the Savior. And he recognized that the cross was not a disqualification of being Messiah, but he recognized that the cross was going to be his entrance into glory, to sit at the right hand of God the Father. He says, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. What's interesting about what he doesn't ask, he doesn't ask for forgiveness. You know why? He doesn't have to. He knows his helpless state. And he knows the goodness of God. He knows the mercy of God. And that's his only hope. He knows that he is deserving. He's receiving his reward here on earth for his sinful life. And he knows that he's about to enter into eternity. And it doesn't look good. What does he do? He said, Jesus, remember me. His plead is for mercy. It helps me think of the psalmist who says, those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. See, he didn't say, get me off the cross. He didn't say, give me some painkillers. He didn't say any of that. He just said, remember me. See, he was staring in the face of death and he realized that his greatest enemy was his sin and he needed to be saved. That's repentance. That's faith. So what should we believe from this? How do we apply this to our lives? We need to remember that we are justified. See, and Christ alone can justify us. Because if we try to work out our justification, we are going to be self-righteous, judgmental, ugly people. But when we realize that we have been justified by Christ, our only response should be thankfulness, joy, humility, a love for God, and a deep compassion for our brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, believe you're justified. Point two, a Christian is sanctified. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the supernatural daily process of a Christian maturing spiritually. And let me just address that, too. It's we're all at different places in there. Okay, Um, think of a child. Um, When a child comes into the world, um, they're helpless. They need a lot of direction. They need to be fed. Um, They they need their diapers changed, Um, you know. 
I, I remember once just kind of in, frustrate, in frustration with my, my first child, just trying to be a father, trying to be a parent, helping my wife. And I actually said, Jonah, stop, stop acting like a baby. <laughs> you know, we, um, and I think we need to realize that spiritually, too, that when we come into the world, we need a lot of help. And when we come into the family of Christ, we still need a lot of help. And we will need help through our entire sanctification process. But, see, this is the supernatural daily process of Christian maturity. Um, it's, it's founded in believing in God's word. It's empowered by the spirit of God. And, and see, sanctification and justification, they go hand in hand. Justification is, is what faith looks like. It's what it sounds like. See, when, when you believe something, it affects the way you think, it affects the way you feel, and it affects what you say and what you do. Let me say this too. It's been said, and it's very true, saving faith is working faith. Let me say it again. Saving faith is working faith. When somebody has put their trust in Jesus Christ, that same faith, will transform them. Now, different speeds and at different modes, and God has us at different places and at different times, but there will be growth. He's committed to that. He says, He who began a good work will be faithful to carry out that work in Christ Jesus until the day he returns. So sanctification, it's what our faith looks like and sounds like. What's the outcome of this sanctification process, this, this faith that we can see and hear? It's, it's not that we will be sinless, but we will sin less. I want to say that again. We'll never be sinless this side of heaven, but we will sin less. See, it's, it's our personal holiness. And I don't, want to com- I don't want to confuse this at all. See, we'll become more like Christ. It's the daily process of taking off self and putting on Christ by trusting in the gospel for him being the one who meets all of our needs. And see, we're, we're people of, of, of habit. And very often we just go back to the habit of, hey, I got to take care of myself. I got to do this on my own. I got to trust in my bank account. I got to do this. All these things is what the world is constantly telling us. And we do have to navigate and work through that. Okay. The Bible's very real about that, but we need to always realize our justification in Christ Jesus. So that will influence how we navigate life, how we respond to life's difficulties. And our greatest desire will not be personal success, but personal faithfulness. It's becoming more like Christ. That's what sanctification is all about, growing up and maturing and becoming like Christ. My mom passed... Um, last Mother's Day. And I, I miss her. And I remember having many theological conversations. One of the theological conversations we have often dealt with eternal security. And see, she kind of, she would, she would say, I can't believe that preacher. He said that if, you, if you're a Christian, you can, you can murder someone, you can steal, you can lie and cheat and curse, and you're still a Christian. And I said, Mom, that sounds like sloppy preaching. Okay, let me say that first of all. That sounds like really sloppy. There is some truth to that. Okay, there definitely is. Okay, 
but, and she would go, but, but how can you do all those things? And just, uh, you, you've got to repent, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, repentance is important, but don't think that repentance earns your salvation, okay? Repentance is the right response to when we do sin, okay? In light of what God has done for us, in, in light of that we are already his sons and daughters, in light that we are already forgiven and we've been given his righteousness, it's a realization of God doesn't want me to live like that. That's not good for me and it does not glorify him. See, uh, and as we would talk through how Christ paid for all of our sins and that there's nothing that we could do to erase our sins, it's only because of his justification, because of his work in Christ. She goes, Bobby, I know you're right. It's just, it's just, I don't trust myself. And I said, Mom, I don't trust you either. That's why we need Jesus. (laughs) See, the focus of our faith always has to be on Christ. Let's see how the the criminal handled this. In verses 41 and 42, But the other rebuked him, saying, "Do Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we justly... For we're receiving the due reward, our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How is this criminal's faith working? See, again, we see and we hear. His justification was based upon his conviction of his own sinfulness and the righteousness of God and the work of Jesus Christ. But as we look to the other Gospels, we see that it speaks of both criminals railing Jesus. There was a change in this criminal's heart. Okay? Not only did he repent of general sin, but according to other Gospels, he was mocking Christ at one point. But there's a changed tune here. There's a supernatural work that's taken place in his heart. We see that he is truly spiritually hungry. And again, he asks, for spiritual life. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He doesn't ask for anything that this world has to offer, but his focus is on Christ and his coming kingdom. So sanctification, how do we apply that today? Yes, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's through us. But the key word is us, plural. See, sanctification does not happen in isolation. Sanctification happens corporately. See, all of the teachings and commands of Christ in the New Testament are one another's. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Forgive one another. Serve one another. The list goes on. In fact, the New Testament has 59 one another commands. This is how sanctification takes place. You can't grow up and mature by yourself. As the Apostle Paul says, do not forsake the assembling of the saints. We need to come to church. Yes, church does not save you, but church does sanctify you. Being in a community group does sanctify you. Okay? Having the opportunity to serve and love and forgive and be forgiven sanctifies you. 
We need one another. My third and final point, a Christian will be glorified. What is glorification? Glorification is God's final removal of sin from his people and the transformation of our mortal bodies into immortal ones and seeing the beautiful face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, our faith will be made sight. Our glorification, this is what fuels our repentance and faith. It's our hope, what we look forward to. We've been justified. The judge's hammer has been slammed down. We have been declared righteous. Jesus has given us his spirit, which is a deposit. It's a guarantee of what's yet to come. What's yet to come is glorification. Sanctification is the process of dying to self and living for Christ. And we do that because we know one day we'll be made like Christ. Let's take a look at not what the criminal says, but what, the, what Christ says to the criminal. He's made the confession of his helpless state, his sinfulness, getting his due reward. He's made his statement, his conviction that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the righteous one the only one without sin. And when he asks him to forgive him, Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, clean up your act. He didn't say, pray the sinner's prayer. He said, Today, you will be with me in paradise. See, just like Abraham, this man's faith was credited to him as righteousness. What's our application to our glorification of of knowing that one day we will not have to struggle with our sinful selves? We will not have to look in the mirrors and say, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired of myself. Knowing that one day... All rights and injustices will be made, all wrongs and all injustices will be made right. Of knowing that every tear will be wiped away, of knowing that God heard every one of our prayers. The response to that is enjoy the privilege of being the only people on earth that can truly love God. See, true love has no strings attached. See, since a Christian is already justified and is in the process of being sanctified and knows that one day he'll be glorified, that we have a victory in Christ already, we are the only ones capable of loving God with no strings attached. We can love God freely. We don't have to earn anything. We don't have to impress him. There's no unforgiveness between us. There's peace. We've been made right. We are the only people, Christians, who can love God freely.
And we now have the ability to love one another. No strings attached. Now, do we always do that? No. That's why we need to rest in our justification, our sanctification, and look forward to our glorification. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so beautiful. Your son is majestic. He is our kind shepherd. He is our blessed Lord and Savior. He is our mighty king. He is the pure and spotless lamb of God. He is the only one who can save. And Lord, you've given us your spirit. You've not left us as orphans, but you've given us your spirit to be our counselor, to be our teacher, to remind us of all truth. And to do that together, it's what unites your family. It's what connects us with one another, your spirit. Father, you're so good. You have given us all that we need in Christ Jesus. Lord God, I just pray that today that your words would sink deeply into our hearts, that we would embrace our justification. Know that because of the work of Christ and his work alone, we have been made righteous. We do not deserve it. We could never earn it. It's a gift. It's grace. Lord God, please help us to exercise our sanctification. Yes, you love us where we're at, but you're not done with us. You have called us. You have a purpose for us. We're to be your ambassadors. We're your dear children, Lord. Help us to grow up together in maturity into the likeness of Christ, our head of the church. Lord God, help us to exercise exercise our sanctification. And Lord God, help us to have eyes that are set on you alone and our hope of seeing you one day face to face, our hope of knowing that one day we're going to get a super duper upgrade. We're not going to know pain. We're not going to know tiredness. We're not going to know illness. We're not going to know tragedy. We're not going to know the loss of loved ones. We're not going to have to deal with sin or or see the ones that we love hurt and crushed by sin. Sin will be eradicated and we will see your beautiful face and we will be with you in paradise forever. Lord God, help us to keep our eyes set on you and our future glorification to fuel our faith and our repentance, Lord. Lord, as As John the Baptist and Jesus said, help us, Lord, to produce good fruit in keeping with faith and repentance for our good and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.